Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. Look, Indy, the Roman numerals. Dave was on to something here. Well, now we know the source of the numbers, but we still don't know what they mean. Dad sent me this diary for a reason, until we find out why, so just we keep it to ourselves. Find something? Uh, yes, three, seven, and ten. The window seems to be the source of the Roman numeral. My God, I must be blind. Dad wasn't looking for a book about the knight's tomb. He was looking for the tomb itself. Don't you get it? The tomb is somewhere in the library. You said yourself it used to be a church. Look. So that was a clip from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusader, where Indy and a colleague are on the hunt for the Holy Grail. And the diary of Indy's dad has led them to a library in Venice. It makes searching for items in libraries sound so exciting. You've got primary sources, you've got Roman numerals, and when you find the item you're looking for, you get to literally dig into it. Obviously, this is the Hollywood version of finding something in a library, but if you listen to last month's episode, you'll appreciate the tie-in to libraries that used to be churches, right? I hope our listeners are excited for this episode, and in some ways, searching for a resource at the library can feel a bit like a scavenger hunt or an archaeological dig. There are so many ways to find what you're looking for, but first, you have to find the right set of words or then find the right numbers. Ah, yes. Of course, you are referring to what some librarians call the old old Dewey Decimal Dance. <laughs> old is one way to think about it. This form of information retrieval was created in the late 19th century by Melville Dewey in order to arrange and classify books, both old and new, based on subject. Almost 200,000 libraries in over 100 countries adopted Dewey's classification system. So ideally, you can find the same book by searching for the same number in relatively the same location in any participating library. It sounds simple enough, organizing all known and not yet known information in the world. Obviously, I'm kidding, because when you start to get into the nitty gritty of cataloging, it is not simple at all. And that's what this episode is all about. Many libraries in America have used the same classification systems for over 100 years, for as long as Brooklyn Public Library has been around. But a lot has changed since the 1890s. So today on Borrowed, we will explore how those changes might be reflected or not in the library catalog. I'm Krista Corbett-Kavoris. And I'm Adra Ducey. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. Mm-hmm. 
You know, using a library catalog isn't that far off from that scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusader. You start off with a name, perhaps, or dare I say a keyword, and then you connect ideas until you find the answers or items that you're looking for. For me, it felt like a treasure hunt where I was trying to find all of these different critical pieces of information and make sure they were all in the right place at the right time. That's Jazz Zulida, a job information resource librarian at BPL. They worked as a cataloger at the start of their library career. And while it did feel like an Indiana Jones treasure hunt some of the time, Jazz noted a key difference between the library catalog and a treasure map. The library catalog is not just a collection of clues and numbers that's as neutral as a treasure map. It was created a long time ago, and it has implicit biases built in. Here's Jazz again. I noticed that some of the things that I was looking at were like, uh, iffy. You know, some of the terms were kind of racially insensitive. Some of them were pretty questionable as far as like current LGBTQ terms. Um, And I started feeling like, okay, well, if this is bothering me and I know what to look for, but this is what I'm coming across, you know, what's the experience like for, you know, people coming into the library? How are they going to find something that has this, you know, descriptor that's like wildly out of date. So that excitement of the search that we've been trying to drum up in this episode can actually be quite frustrating. For now, let's forget about the sometimes confusing run of numbers on a book spine. When we first approach a search, it's often with a set of words in mind. Right. So what some listeners may not realize is that items in a classification system like Dewey Decimal correspond to a standard set of terms called subject headings, which are used as the index to find similar items under the same subject. And it's not just in library catalogs. You can find subject headings by looking at the title page of pretty much any book published by a major publisher in the United States. Right under the copyright and year, there are Library of Congress subject headings for that particular book. So, for example, I've got a book in my hand that might sound familiar to some of our listeners, Palaces for the People by Eric Kleinenberg. And I see that the Library of Congress has assigned the following terms, infrastructure, parentheses, economics, dash United States, and city planning, dash United States, and so on. The Library of Congress began to set the standard for those subject headings in the late 1800s, and they are still used by many different types of libraries around the world. Here's Jazz again. Subject headings are like sort of in the background, uh, doing some of the heavy lifting so that when people are looking for things, they can actually find it. With a caveat, though, that um, the people who invented all of these subject headings uh, were old dead white people. Uh, So they are not all very contemporaneous. Today, you might approach our library website like you would a search engine. You type in a set of words related to the topic that you're hoping to read about. Let's say you're looking for a book on immigrants in Bushwick and you type in Immigrant New York. A whole set of resources comes up and then on the right-hand side of the screen, you will actually see the subject headings that are going to bring you to other material about that topic. Now, In order to be more user-friendly on BPL's website, we're calling those tags because that's more familiar to people. Before last year, if you put in those search terms, Immigration New York, you'd see a subject heading called, quote, illegal alien. That's exactly what happened to Melissa Padilla when she was a freshman at Dartmouth College. Trying to figure out how 
Uh, the library worked, especially since essays are a big life of liberal arts life. Um, I ended up uh, not knowing how to find works on immigration and undocumented people in general. So Melissa set up an appointment with Dartmouth librarian Jill Barron so she could get an overview of the library catalog. And as we're scrolling through, I'm just realizing that uh, the the word illegal uh aliens, illegal immigrants just keeps coming up and up. And it was very incongruent with, you know, the titles of the articles or the books that I was seeing. Encountering that term, illegal alien, felt very personal to Melissa. I think I almost put it in the mindset of um, of when I was a child. I grew up in Georgia Um, I've always, uh, I always knew that I was undocumented. And so, um, whether it was in the media, right? Like the things that I was seeing, or if it was, you know, my classmates using those words or talking about my community in a derogatory way, because that's how they've just associated the word. It really, it really did shape my childhood. It shaped how I saw other people and how I kind of perceived them to see my community. It, you know, from what I know about us, it just, it never made sense to me. Jill, the Dartmouth librarian Melissa was working with, explained that while they could make a local change at the university, to make that change outside of Dartmouth, they would have to petition the governing body that standardizes the subject headings, the Library of Congress. Over the course of the next four years, Melissa and fellow Dartmouth student activists worked with librarians and the Dartmouth administration to do just that. Their efforts were recorded for the documentary film directed by Jill Barron and Sawyer Broadley, titled Change the Subject, which showed the steps from changing the term from illegal alien to undocumented immigrants within the Dartmouth Library catalog, all the way to meeting with lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Because as Melissa describes it, It was a systemic problem um, that if we fixed it at Dartmouth College, it would be like putting a Band-Aid on, you know, some bigger problem. The Library of Congress rejected their initial application in 2014, but their efforts were covered in the media and eventually gained support within the American Library Association, which endorsed the change. So with the support of the ALA, the Library of Congress approved the subject heading change in 2016. But that journey was not yet over. 2016 was a tumultuous political year, the year Donald Trump gained prominence in the presidential race in large part due to his racist attitude towards undocumented immigrants. So the subject heading change at the Library of Congress did not go unnoticed. Republican representatives in Congress pushed back against the change, and the story was covered in national media outlets. We scrubbed these terms in the first place because some college students felt that they were dehumanizing. This is where we have political correctness gone amok. Um, we see a group of very liberal students from... What on earth is going on over at the Library of Congress? The Library of Congress has a formal process in which subject headings can be changed. And it's been going on without external political influence since 1909. But 2016 was the first time in American history that Congress attempted to stop a change in the library's catalog terminology. As a result, although the Library of Congress had technically approved the subject heading change, none of those changes were implemented. 
So effectively, libraries using the LOC system still had the illegal alien subject heading term in their catalogs. It's kind of an example of how much impact a word can have on just one person. And like, for me, it shaped my entire life. Um, and it's not, it's not asking people to solve like the question of what is life. Like we're not asking people to make a dramatic change. It's literally just changing the words that we use to talk about other communities that we may not be a part of. The Change the Subject initiative runs parallel to broader activism around the words we use. For example, the Drop the Eye campaign started by young people in 2010 to disrupt usage of the term illegal to describe people. But before these examples of early 21st century linguistic activism, librarian and cataloger Sandy Berman is often referenced as a pioneer of suggesting alternative subject heading terms. Berman has brought forth over 200 petitions before the Library of Congress. Yes, Berman was active from the 1970s up until the 1990s and believed that continual removal of terms with pejorative social associations was a necessary exercise in confronting bias within library catalogs. According to Stephen A. Knowlton, who wrote about the impact of Berman's work on cataloging, quote, of the 225 headings Berman suggested changes in, 88 or 39 percent have been changed almost exactly as he suggested, while an additional 54 or 24 percent have been changed in ways that partially reflect Berman's suggestions. So digging into Berman's recommendations for changes to the catalog was really interesting. I mean, up until the 1970s, the subject headings for homosexuality and lesbianism were cross-referenced with sexual perversion alongside subjects such as pedophilia and sex crimes. Right. And Berman advocated and won other changes to the catalog. Examples include the deletion of subject headings such as mammies in favor of childcare workers, wet nurses, and nannies with no African-American subdivision, deleting underdeveloped areas in favor of developing countries, and the deletion of terms such as Jewish question and yellow peril. For librarians and catalogers in the 1970s and up till the 1990s, when Sandy Berman and others were making changes to subject headings, it would have been a lot of physical work to create those new terms and correct problematic cross-references, right? Because physical card catalogs were still the dominant mode of information retrieval, so you'd have to go through and reprint hundreds of cards. But Sandy Berman certainly wasn't the first librarian to challenge widely accepted subject headings. Exactly. In the 1930s, librarian Dorothy Porter Wesley relabeled and rearranged the shelves of Howard University Library without waiting for the Library of Congress to catch up. Porter Wesley is considered an African-American pioneer in librarianship, one of the first to attend Columbia University's library school. After working at NYPL's 135th Street branch, where she rubbed shoulders with Harlem Renaissance elites, like the historian and collector Arthur Schomburg, whose collection of African-American literature makes the basis of NYPL's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture today, Porter Wesley went on to become the head librarian of Howard University's Moreland Springer and Research Center, where she nearly single-handedly assembled and cataloged the collection on a shoestring budget. Here's Porter Wesley speaking in an interview from 1992. Schomburg was writing me, where can I find a copy of this book? Do you know anything about it? Where can I find a copy of this book, you see? And then on the other hand, I would write him. I said, I want a copy of Benjamin Banneker's Almanac with a photograph. 
which had been drawn of Benjamin Banneker. Nobody seemed to be able to find that. I think it was 1792, Almanac. So Schomburg helped me to find things, and I helped him to find things, although I was building a library for Howard University. That recording was from an interview conducted by Louis Messiah in 1992, and you can hear the full version on the podcast, Archival Revival, Camera Original Conversations on Black Life. We'll put a link in our show notes. As Porter Wesley assembled these works, she realized that if she maintained the rubric outlined by the Library of Congress subject headings, and specifically the Dewey Decimal Cataloging Scheme, then most of the titles would fall under only one or two numerical ranges. In a series of oral history interviews conducted in 1993 and 1994, Porter Wesley said that the Dewey Decimal System, quote, had one number, 326, that meant slavery, and they had one other number, 325, as I recall it, that meant colonization. So all libraries, many of them white libraries, every book, whether it was a book of poems by James Weldon Johnson, who everyone knew was a black poet, when under 325, the term for colonization. And that was stupid to me. By physically relocating authors and subjects of the African diaspora among their Eurocentric counterparts, Porter Wesley more or less desegregated the library's shelves, bringing to light some of the inherent biases of early classification that were a direct result of societal marginalization and racism. Dorothy Porter Wesley and Sandy Berman may have started the linguistic crusade for more accurate and unbiased subject headings, but the movement doesn't stop with them. It continues to be taken up by scores of people in the library profession who are urged on by patrons' needs for truthful representation. I was interviewing a couple of teenagers, um, and one of them, he was a senior in high school and he was about to graduate, and he asked this question about having proper terminology, how can they trust the library, knowing that not all the terms are actually up to date and reflective of who who they are as people. That's Hailing Oropesa, a librarian at BPL and another member of our Alternative Classification Committee, along with Jazz Ulita, who we heard from earlier in the episode. Here's Jazz again. If we don't describe things the way that people think to find them, they won't find them. If we don't use modern language, you know, if we don't keep up with things, if we're not nimble, you know, nobody's going to use search terms or think about how somebody talked about something in the 1950s or the 1930s or the 1895, you know, Uh, we have to shift, we have to change. And it's something I always keep in the back of my mind. And hailing. As an immigrant myself, I feel that... um, people here in New York and working with other nonprofit immigrant organizations to use their word, their language, which is undocumented, I think means a lot to them. In the fall of 2021, with a Democrat for president, the Library of Congress finally officially changed the subject heading within their databases and publications from illegal alien to illegal immigrant, essentially removing the word alien. For many activists like Melissa Padilla, this is only half a step in the right direction. The term alien certainly dehumanized its subjects, but the term illegal also unjustly criminalizes and stigmatizes its subjects as well. Replacing illegal with the term undocumented is one of the new rallying cries in this petition's almost decade-long journey. Here's Melissa again reflecting on the Library of Congress's change. There's an opportunity here to have Uh, a conversation 
about what this means for everything moving forward. It's not just undocumented people who are kind of feeling the grunt of pejorative terms, like there's other communities and and there's also questions about the petition process and and you know the power structure of of who gets to make the decisions about these changes. And here's BPL librarian Hailing Oropesa again. This just shows the relationship between government and Library of Congress can't be separated at that level. So we each at local levels need to decide whether to separate ourselves from that or you know, continue to be a part of it. Libraries across the country are making changes within their catalogs at this hyper-local level. Here at BPL, we've done something similar to what the librarians at Dartmouth did. In the summer of 2020, we masked the LOC subject heading for illegal alien and now illegal immigrant with the term undocumented immigrant. There are several other terms that have been masked in our catalog, and we'll put a link to those in our show notes. And the work of BPL's Alternative Classification Committee isn't over. We are looking forward to further public discourse about subject heading changes within our local catalog, and we will be performing an audit of outdated terms, like this one that Jazz pointed out during our conversation. For me, I noticed that some contemporary books published in the last couple of years, maybe even some DVDs, a couple of items, uh, had the subject heading transsexual. Uh, Transsexual is not an offensive term, but it is not a term that's commonly in use in the United States to describe somebody who's transgender. The American Library Association and the Public Library Association continue to convene discussions around these issues. We'll give links to some of these in our show notes as well. It wouldn't be a borrowed episode without books. BPL Civic Commons staff member Bruna Ververes put together a list of books to go along with this episode. In this case, all books that fall under the subject heading Undocumented Immigration. Well, I found these titles uh, through the BPL's website. Uh, most of them, I just searched the phrase undocumented immigrants and a whole wealth of books popped up, uh, something like 11 pages of everything that had that tag in it. So all books that had content related to uh, migration, uh, documentations, uh, those were all listed very nicely together. I tried to pick um, a list that was very broad uh, in terms of subject matter and writers. I wanted kind of to curate a list of the variety of experiences of being an undocumented immigrant. So the first book is Signs Preceding the End of the World by Yuri Herrera, translated into English by Lisa Dillman. This is a book that I really enjoyed. It's a really short book. It's only about 100 pages, but it is a fascinating, challenging, exciting, beautiful read. The author really avoids naming a lot of places and activities. So we get kind of the peripheral idea of this is happening in Mexico City or in a village in rural Mexico. And the narrator is encountering these people who are untrustworthy or shady, but by not labeling them as drug traffickers or, or coyotes or people who smuggle anyone across the border, it creates this kind of fairy tale like environment where something that's very politically realist you know, the, that we're accustomed to thinking about becomes this fable-like mythical story about 
humanity, identity, language, and who we are when we travel from one place to another. The second book is a novel uh, from 2020 by Lizzie A. Torino called The Son of Good Fortune. It's a good contrast to the first novel that I picked because it's a very funny and relatable book. It's about a family of Filipino immigrants who are, the colloquial term is Tago ng Tago, which means hiding and hiding. So they're a family that doesn't have the proper documentation to stay in America, uh, which the son didn't know for the first 10 years of his life. And the story is kind of his reckoning with the idea of him not really being a part of this place that he grew up, where all of his friends live, where his entire life is. And it's a, I really enjoyed this book because we're really accustomed to reading about tragic endings and we really only get to see in the news and the headlines the worst case scenarios and we don't see these people living their everyday lives when there isn't necessarily the immediate threat of deportation or incarceration. It's more of a quiet humanistic look at how does it feel to live every day not feeling like you belong, not knowing where exactly your home is going to be 10 years from now. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krista Corbett-Kavoris and Adjua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode as well as the full book match list on our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Borrowed is produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Provitt, and Robin Lester Kenton. This episode was written by me, Adra Ducey. Thank you to our beta listeners on this episode, Melissa Marone, Lucretia Neal, and Kat Savage. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Meryl Friedman designed our logo. Borrowed will be back next month. Until then, you have our permission to arrange your books however you see fit.